Well, this week, of course, as you, as you know, was, was election week. And, and we're a polling station, and so I sat there over my office and, uh, and, and watched the steady stream of people come in the door. We, from what I gather, we cover in our particular polling station about a quarter of the county. And so if you ever wonder why in the world I have to stand in line so long at Elm Grove Baptist Church to vote, well, good grief, well, that's the reason. And so anyway, we, uh, we elected uh, different offices this week, governor and so on and so forth. And, uh, and with that in mind, I, I, I want to let you know I'm announcing this morning my candidate for presidency next year, just so you know. Um, you want to start a write-in campaign? I wore my presidential tie this morning. I kind of, you know, they got better hair than I do, most of them. But I, you know... Um, Anyway, I'll be 35 next year, so I can run. My, my, daughter, my daughter, Lucy, she said, oh, yeah. I said, why do you want me to run for president? I want to live in the White House. I said, thanks a lot. So, you know, uh, my, my campaign slogan, bringing potluck meals to the White House. What I, that's what we're going to do, all right? It's, I'm running in the Elm Grove party. How about that, all right? So, uh, but anyway, it, it obviously an uh, important week for, uh, for our state in particular, and then certainly for, for other folks uh, around the around the country, but you know, if you think about when you cast that vote, if if you went to vote this week, you cast that vote based upon several different factors. Typically, uh, you'll cast a vote based upon uh, your decision on who that person is, who who do you believe they really are. Now, uh, of course, it's hard to cut through some of the junk and figure out who really is that person, but but that's who you you vote for is who do I think that person is, and then you vote on what have they done. You know, in, in the commercials, they try to present to you who they are and, and what they've done. Here's my, my record of success, so to speak. And, and, man, they make those folks sound like they are, are the second coming of Jesus Christ. No, I mean, every single one of them. And then, of course, if you watch their opponent's ad, you know, they're Satan. You know, everybody, you know, it's, it's one or the other. But, uh, but, then, but you try to figure out, okay, who is this person? Uh, what have they done? And then thirdly, what are they going to do? And, and that's really sort of the, the unknown. What are, they, what are they about? Now, I kind of get an idea of who they are. And I see what they've done, what they've voted for in the past, or the programs they've started. But what are they going to do? And that's what you vote on. And all those people that trickled in our door the other day, they went into that, that polling booth there, and they cast the vote based upon who they thought a person was, what that person had done, and what they believed was going to happen. Now, this morning... We're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that we're continuing from last week that puts Jesus in just that light, who He is, what He's done, and what He's going to do. And so I, I want us to kind of have that in mind, and, and we'll close all that up with what is our response to who He is, to what He's done, and to what He will do. Now, last week, we began to look at the church as the bride of Christ. If you're new here with us this morning, we're in a series called The Church as God Describes It. Our goal here at Elm Grove is not to be the church that we describe, but the church as God describes it. So we've looked at several different things. We looked at the body of Christ, the family of God, and last week we began to look at the bride of Christ. Now we paused right in the middle of that last week because you know as well as I do, if I'd kept going, we'd still be here. Okay, So, so we paused and we, we said we continue it this week. But what we looked at last week, kind of laying the groundwork, is that the Bible describes the church all, of, all believers in Jesus Christ as the bride of Christ. Now, that could be some confusing language if you don't know the history and the context of why it would be used in that way. In the Old Testament, we saw this last week. We looked at a verse in Isaiah. God describes himself as the husband to Israel. That's the closeness there to have. Their relationship with him was to be as husband and wife. 
faithful to one another, faithful to the promises they've made, and so on and so forth. And so God describes himself as the husband to Israel. You fast forward to the New Testament, Jesus now appears on the scene, and the church is now the bride of Christ, Jesus as the husband to the church. Now we have to get past, of course, some of the romantic kind of thoughts that come into mind and understand that the, the metaphor here is being used for the closeness, the oneness, the faithfulness. All of that that goes into a strong marriage relationship, that's what God's describing. And so it, it draws also on this, this historical idea of the Jewish betrothal. Now, if, you, if you're unfamiliar with this, it's a little different than our system of, of finding a husband and wife. You know, uh, here uh, in America, it's, it's not really anything like what it was in ancient Jewish times. Marriages were arranged back then by the parents, and they would figure out who's going to be married and so on and so forth. And, and imagine if that were the case uh, for us here in America. We, we think we've got a problem with teenagers now. Uh, you'd start trying to arrange marriages, and, and you know, you have a revolt on your hands. And so... But anyway, back during, during these ancient Jewish times, the betrothal period, the marriage was arranged, and then at that point, the couple was considered to be, legally anyway, married. Now, they had not come to live together. They would not consummated the relationship in a sexual nature, but they were considered to be one, considered to be married. And during that time, the husband, the bridegroom, would go off to prepare a home. And he would, li would likely have received something from his father. He would, worked, would have worked for a period of time. And he, he goes to build or to, to get ready the home that he will then bring his bride to. Now, if this sounds familiar, uh, as far as what Jesus is doing now for us, well, that's intentional in the Scripture. The bride during that time was expected to keep herself pure. Now, we know that was a big deal because if you know the Christmas story, you know that Joseph and Mary, who were pledged to be married, viewed themselves as husband and wife, and when Mary was found, it says, to be with child, before they had come together, what's Joseph's response? He's going to divorce her quietly. He's going to divorce her, it says. So she was expected to remain pure, and any impurity was defaulting on the relationship. It was unfaithful. And so the preparation, the excitement would, would build, but they were already considered by Jewish law to be together even though the consummation was down the road. Now, that sort of analogy, that metaphor, is, is what I want you to think along the lines of how do we describe ourselves as the bride of Christ? Well, we are in the engagement period. We have not yet consummated fully the relationship with God that we'll have in heaven one day. We're not totally physically together, but we're already to be considered one with Him. Now, last week, I asked you to play a little game in a restaurant. Who is it that you can see is clearly engaged and excited about it? And which couples have forgotten what it's like to be engaged? Now, I won't tell you uh, who I noticed, who I was spying on all week long. No, I'm just joking with you. I did see one couple at Los Portales on, uh, on Sunday, and I said, Now, y'all not the couple that's forgotten what it's like to be engaged, are you? Oh, no, 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 of course not. And, uh, but I, I had you play that little game, and, and it's evident if you were to go and you see couples sitting together, you can tell, and, and obviously some by age, of course, but which couples are, are engaged to be married, and they're so excited, got so much to talk about, so much joy in the relationship, they're so looking forward to that wedding date, and, and then you've got the other folks who they're just there to eat, you know, <laughs> they ain't worried about talking, they just want to eat, you know. 
I didn't come to this good restaurant to let my food get cold by talking, you know. So, but, but in all seriousness, of course, you can tell there's some couples, and sadly, they, they've forgotten what it's like to be engaged. They've forgotten how exciting that time was. Maybe you've experienced that in your own marriage, and you just are in a point where you just think, wow, where's the excitement? Do we still really, I mean, I know we love each other, we're committed, but do we even like each other anymore? Where's the excitement in our marriage? I equated that last week to, I think, uh, equally painful and equally sad is there are many churches, many Christians who've forgotten what it's like to be in relationship with Jesus. We exist, we come to church, we might fill up the building. And yet, some of us here have forgotten what it's like to be in relationship with the Lord. There's no joy in our lives, there's constant defeat, there's no victory. There's just discouragement over and over and over again. And you've seen in churches, and praise God we're not experiencing that here right now, but the Bible says take heed lest you also fall. You've seen churches that have forgotten what it's like to love the Lord, to focus on His purposes and His mission. The results in the church like that are far from what God wants for us. They're far from what pleases Him, far from what impacts a lost world. And our goal through these couple of messages is simply to recapture or to be reminded of what it's like to be in relationship with Jesus. And the fact that we are in relationship with Him, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the fact that our church is a local body, local bride of Christ, it's got to be a game changer for us, if you understand what I mean. It's got to change it. We can't walk away the same as we came if we fully understand what it's like to be in relationship with Jesus. The scripture we're looking at is in Ephesians. If you have a Bible... You want to turn there. Ephesians is over in the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We used to call that the General Electric Power Company for easy memory. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 5. The scripture we're looking at is one that you've probably heard before. You've probably maybe been to a wedding and they read this particular scripture challenge the bride, challenge the groom to live by these implications. And yet, as we'll see, this really has an overarching truth and teaching for the church. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as also Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her in the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery, this revelation is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. If you've got a hymnal while you're thinking about that scripture, grab your hymnal real quick if you've got one. I've got some extras, but I, I don't know if tossing them back to you would be helpful. Grab a hymnal, turn to number 320. 320. This particular passage of Scripture highlights who the Lord is, 
what he has done and what he will do. And so my goal, quite honestly, is hymn number 320. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Through death into life everlasting, he passed and we follow him there. Over us, sin no more hath dominion. For more than conquerors we are. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying. His perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You may not walk away here today with five steps you can take to be a better person, but if you walk away today having turned your eyes upon Jesus, that's all I'm concerned with. Because in the scripture in Ephesians, we see him for who he is, we see him for what he has done, and we see him for what he will do. The implications of God describing the church as the bride of Christ comes with a specific target in verse 27 of Ephesians 5. He did this, talking about what Jesus has done, to present the church himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. Our target, as we looked at last week, you'll see on the back of your bulletin, it's already filled in for you, I think. I ruined it for some of you, but it's already filled in. Our target is purity and anticipation. The implications of us being described as the bride of Christ bring with it that we are to be pure and we are to be filled with anticipation. Now last week we looked at the fact that that our purity as far as on our side comes through our submission. Our submission to the Lord. We looked first last week at submission to who He is. It says, For the husband is head of the wife, verse 23, as Christ also is the head of the church, the Savior of the body. So as the church submits to Christ, we look at who He is as the head, as the leader, as the one who takes responsibility for us, as the one without whom we have no hope of salvation. And we submit to Christ. That word submit means to make yourself lower, to obey, to yield to His leadership, to put yourself under Him, to remain under His control. It has both a passive connotation, that's to get out of His way, <laughs> And it has an active connotation, that means obedience in what we say and what we do. And as we discover more of who He is, what He's done, and what, we, what He will do, we're instructed further to submit to Him and all of those things as well. So last week we saw submit because of who He is. He's the Savior of the church. John, the Apostle John, would describe Him as the light of the world. John the Baptist would say, he's, he's the one that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We submit to him simply because of who he is. And if that's all that we knew, just who he is, it would be enough to warrant our submission. Paul says he's the head of the church, the Savior of the body. Belief that he exists is not enough takes true faith. It's involved in submission to Him. 
That's what it takes to truly know the Lord. Good morning. Hello. Come on in. That's okay. We saw last week submission because of who He is. This week I want to look at submission because also of what He has done. Recognition of who He is is certainly enough to prompt our, prompt our submission, but Paul goes further and he describes what He has done. Look in verse 25. We'll get an idea. If you want to write these things down, there'll just be some one-word things that you can put down there on your bulletin and study later. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives just as also Christ, what? Loved the church. What has he done? He has loved us. Flip back a couple of pages in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. Look at verse 14. Paul has been describing to them several truths of Scripture, several truths about the Lord. And he's talking to them about their, their strength that comes from all of that. And he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he might grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, and that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, and catch this part, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to, the, to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is that they would get it, that they would understand the height, the depth, the width of God's love for them through Jesus Christ. I honestly believe, and I speak both from the truth of Scripture and from my own experience, I honestly believe that if we truly understood the incredible love of Christ for us, it would change everything about us. It really, really would. And I'm talking not only to those who are unsaved in our midst this morning, who desperately need to receive the love and forgiveness of Jesus for the promise of eternal life and forgiveness of sin. I'm also talking to those of us who are Christians who've forgotten what it's like to be in relationship with the Lord, a love-based relationship. I really believe it would change everything about us if we, as Paul prays, would comprehend what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. I think if we did that, we'd see no more competition. <laughs> We wouldn't be trying to prove ourselves all the time. Wouldn't be so much fear in life. Fear of the unknown, fear of what might happen, fear of what has happened, fear of, of whatever. I don't think there'd be as much chasing after stuff that doesn't last. We truly understood the love that Jesus has for us. How high and how wide and how deep and how far it goes. Reaching us in our sin picking us up out of that. I really believe that if we understood how Christ has loved the church, it would change everything about us. I won't go into great detail this morning on all of this, but on each of these, I, there's so many implications, so much that could be said. I hope that you'll study the love of Christ that He has for you. 
that he wants to offer you and pour out over and over and over again. I believe it will change everything. He's loved us. Verse 25 goes on to say, Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. What has he done? He has loved us. He has given himself for us. The natural extension of his great love is to give himself. Look in the book of John. Flip around with me a little bit this morning. Let's learn our Bibles if you don't know them already. Book of John. Turn to the left a little bit from Ephesians. If you want to hold your place in Ephesians, we'll come back to it. John is the fourth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Look in John chapter 15, verse 13. Jesus himself is talking here. And he says, No greater love, no one has greater love than this, or greater love hath, hath no man than this. Remember that old translation? Some of you are reading it right now. Greater love hath no man than this. No one has greater love than this that someone would lay down his life for his friends. What's Jesus about to do? Lay down his life for his friends. He's about to say, the extension of my great love for you, I have loved you, and as an extension, by automatic extension, I lay down my life for you. Some of you have people in your life that you would absolutely, in a heartbeat, die for. I got five of them. Just like that. The extension of my love is to give myself, to lay myself down. And yet, I can't do what Jesus has done through giving himself. I, I can't save those five by giving my life for them for all eternity. I can't save them for all eternity. But Jesus can. The extension of his love is to lay himself down. Look in Romans chapter 5. Turn back toward Ephesians just a little bit. Romans chapter 5. Powerful verse. So many implications. We'll just look at verse 8 out of many that we could, ex could examine here in Romans 5. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, don't miss that part, didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up, didn't wait for us to come to him, while we were still sinners, Christ, what? Died for us. What has He done? He's loved us. He's given Himself for us. And then a little further to the right, 2 Corinthians. I love this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, making an appeal to them to be reconciled to God, to come to Him in faith, to lay down their lives of sin and give it all to Jesus Christ. And he makes this incredible statement. He made, talking about God, He made the one, that's Jesus, who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. If you're an accounting type person or if you handle the books in your home, this will make perfect sense to you. You on your register there have lots of things written down. Payments recorded, money received, and so on and so forth. That's your account, your checking account, so to speak. The Bible makes clear here that the righteousness that we have through Jesus Christ does not naturally come from ourselves. All we have in our account is a bunch of sin. And when Jesus died for us, it says that by grace, through receiving it in faith, 
that our account is emptied of sin once and for all and filled up with His righteousness once and for all. He made Him who knew no sin, no sin in His account whatsoever, all righteousness, to be sin, literally to become sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Our account now filled with righteousness. The love of Jesus, naturally by extension, led to His giving Himself for us to exchange our sin for His righteousness. What an incredible trade. And we, we're the beneficiary. What has He done? He's loved us. He gave Himself for us. Look at verse 26, talking about the church, to make her holy. He's made us holy. That word holy there is a Bible term you've probably heard if you've been in church any length of time. It's a word that simply means set apart. It means called out of something and designated for something else. In this case, God's people being holy means they are called out from sin, called into relationship with Him, set apart for God's glory, set apart for His use, set apart for service to Him. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are set apart. We are made holy. We are no longer our own. We do not any longer belong to ourselves. We have given up the rights to control our own lives, to do whatever in the world we want to do, whenever in the world we want to do it, with whomever in the world we want to do it. We have given ourselves to Jesus Christ. He has made us holy and set us apart. We are set apart to God Himself, set apart to be conformed to Him, set apart to serve Him. The best way that I can illustrate this is by thinking of some of the things that I own. I have a couple of, well, let me say this. I'm, I'm pretty simple when it comes to, to what I have to wear. Now, some of you have noticed that. i got three suits. I'm going to wear one twice in a month. And, and listen, if it's a five-week, five-Sunday month, there's two of them. They're getting rotated in there twice. i got one that's, that's kind of tan, i got one that's black, and i got one that's navy blue. i got three suits. i got one pair of jeans. Some of you are thinking, what? One? Add some zeros on the end of that, you know. I got one pair of jeans. You know why? Because they fit just right. My goodness, I don't want to give those things up. They fit perfectly. They've loosened up over time, you know what I mean? They fit perfectly. I got a couple of ball hats that I love, and they don't smell very good, but they fit just right. Boy, they're conformed exactly to my head. Every one of those things, my suits, my jeans, my ball hats, they are set apart for me. They're not going to fit you. They're not going to work for you because they've been set apart for me. They work for me. Those jeans stand up on their own for me. <laughs> they've been set apart. It's the best way I can illustrate the people of God being set apart to God. We now belong to Him. We're now for His use. We now take on His characteristics. We no longer conform to what we were on the shelf of the store, so to speak. We're fitted to Him. Holy, set apart. Believers belong to God in the same way. You were in 2 Corinthians just a minute ago. I want you to turn back there. I want to illustrate this with a passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, actually just a little bit past where we were. Paul's writing here is, is really... Uh, incredible, and I, and I think it's worth, worth noting. 
he talks about here this, this holiness, this separation to God. What does it actually mean? And he puts some flesh on it here. Verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be mismatched with unbelievers. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Now he's not saying here, don't misunderstand. I'm not going to go into a lot of interpretation on this scripture. But he's not saying don't have friends that aren't believers. He's just talking about you being set apart. Don't give yourselves over to those things anymore. Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial, false God? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? For we, we are the sanctuary of the living God. As God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be what? Separate, holy, separated says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. You get a picture of what holiness is about. Separation from the love, the things in the world. What has He done? He's loved us. He's given Himself for us. He's made us holy. Verse 26, cleansing her in the washing of water by the Word. He's cleansed us. Not only has he set us apart and says, you're going to be different, but he's, he's washed us clean. He says, washed us by washing of water with the word. There's a little debate over this on exactly the implications and what exactly is Paul talking about. But, but I think in simple terms, he's referencing a couple of things here. One, the washing of water. He's talking about the symbolic nature of baptism. You want to know what we, we believe here at Elm Grove, what we teach about baptism here? Let me give you a brief rundown real quick. We believe baptism is a symbol. It does not accomplish salvation. It is a symbol of salvation. A symbol on the outside of what God has done for you on the inside. He has cleansed us on the inside, so symbolically we are cleansed on the outside. Baptism is a wonderful picture of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, he died and was buried, and he was raised again. Jesus himself was baptized by Full immersion, which is one of the reasons why we teach full immersion in baptism here. It's also a picture of the death that we've experienced. I've died to that old life. I've been raised again. The most important element in baptism is the candidate for baptism. I don't know if you've experienced this or not. I know plenty of people who've been baptized and weren't saved. What does that baptism do for you? One thing, it gets you wet. It messes up your hair just a little bit. Unless you're like me and you're kind of slick, you know. Baptism is simply a symbol. The most important element in all that is the candidate for baptism. The person who's been saved. Paul references here the washing, this symbolic washing that we identify with the Lord through our baptism. Some have asked, how can I join this particular church? There are three ways that that you can join our church. One is through baptism. You've never been saved before. You don't know the Lord. You come to salvation. You follow in baptism. Baptism also maybe is for those who've never been fully immersed in their baptism. And that is a way to join this particular fellowship. We're not going to throw you out if you're not baptized by immersion. But if you want to say, I want to be a member of this particular church... With all the different things that come with it, I'd be happy to talk with you about it. The free vacation, the whole deal. But it, no, I'm just joking. <clears throat> um, loosen up. Um, 
But, but baptism by full immersion is the way to identify as a member of this particular local body. And we're thankful for those who come each week that aren't necessarily members of our church. So don't read me the wrong way. There's also coming by your statement of faith. I've already been saved and baptized by immersion, but it maybe it was at a different church, different, uh, it wasn't Southern Baptist. I'm coming by my statement of faith. We receive you through that. There's also the transfer of membership from another Southern Baptist church, member in good standing there, and so on and so forth. I say all that because I don't, I'm not sure when the last time I said all that. <laughs> and I want you to understand. Maybe you, you've got questions about that or you'd like to know more, and I'd be happy to talk with you. Certainly any of our deacons and other leaders in our church would be more than happy to talk with you about those things. But those are the ways that you join the church. Paul here talking about the symbolic washing of water, and he says, washing us with the word. The, the, the baptism comes with the testimony, the word that says, yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I commit my life to him. And we know him through his word, the scriptures that we have. This declaration of faith is certainly involved in that word, and it's also the word through which we're cleansed on a daily basis. Baptism, the symbol of our cleansing. The word of God, the means of our cleansing on a daily basis. Sin, in all truth, as you can probably relate has done a number on many of us here done a number done a number on our families done a number on our on our minds on our hearts on our souls we need to be cleansed from all that what's the means god uses on a regular basis to do that it's his word through the power of his holy spirit he cleanses us the truth is and this will sound funny but some of us here today stink now you're just kind of is he talking about me? Is he talking about you? Some of us here today, let's be honest, we stink. We're dirty. Why? Because you only take one bath a week. What are you talking about? How do you, wait a minute, just a second. Now let's think about it for, for just a minute. How ridiculous would it be, how disgusting over time would it become if you really only took a bath once a week, and yet you who go to work and get your hands dirty and do all this physical labor and all this stuff, you say, ah, one bath a week is good enough for me. It's sort of disgusting, now if you think about it. But the truth is that spiritually, some of us get one bath a week right now. That's it. Praise God you're here. Some of you are going to think, what? Is he angry? I'm not angry. I love you too much to be angry with you. But some of us only get one bath a week in the Word of God, and it's only on Sunday morning, and it's only what God prompts me to bring to you. We've got to be cleansed every single day by the Word of God. My challenge to you is to, yes, take the bath in the Scripture that, that, that prayerfully and Lord willing I'll bring to you each week. But take a bath every day in it. Every day. Every single day. Go back to the Word of God to be cleansed. Why? Because if not, you'll stink. <laughs> you'll stink spiritually. I've been there. I can take a show of hands and say, look, I have, I've been there. I know what it's like to stink spiritually because I've gotten away from the Word of God. And I've just taken a bath once a week. Paid attention a little bit half the time there in church. Sort of gotten a little bit wet. Some water splashed on me from the Word. Take a bath in the Word every single day. Paul will go on to say in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that the Scripture, the Word of God, is, is inspired by him. It's exactly what he wants it to be. 
and it's profitable. It's to our benefit, he says, for teaching what is right and what is wrong. It's profitable for rebuking. That's calling us out. You ever been called out? I've been called out before. been called out by the Scripture on a few things. He says it's profitable for correcting, for setting us back up when we've fallen. He said it's profitable for training and righteousness, to show us the path to take so that we'll have the knowledge and maturity and completeness to serve Him with joy. That's what the Scripture does for us. What has He done? He's cleansed us. He's also made us one with Him. Look at verse 30 of Ephesians 5. Since we are members of His body, for this reason, and He uses Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And He says, this mystery, this revelation is profound, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. That's the oneness. He's made us one with Him. Paul uses this marriage language to describe the oneness that comes with it. He talks about the physical union, the two becoming one flesh, to describe the intimacy that believers are to have with their Lord Jesus. Even before a a Jewish couple, as I mentioned earlier, would be married in a ceremony, they were considered to be one. Everything except the physical union. They're considered to be one. When When I do premarital counseling, some of the things that I will talk about come back to oneness. I strongly encourage them, and I've mentioned this to you before, I think, not to have any prenuptial agreement because you're starting not as one. (laughs) I encourage them to have a joint checking account. Why? Because you're starting as one. I encourage them to do everything and anything they can to become one, to have shared experiences, to be open and honest with one another to try to do some of the same things, to meet in the middle as best they can. And then at the wedding, I will stand, and if I were standing here and the parents were sitting there on the front row, I would stand and I would issue a challenge to the parents, and I would say something like this. Today, so-and-so and and -and so-and-so begin a new family together. The most important human relationship they have from this point forward is the one they have with each other. So as their parents, I encourage you, And I challenge you. And essentially, I would say, leave them alone. (laughs) Let them become one. Give advice when they ask for it. (laughs) Get involved when they need it. Some of you said amen. So (laughs) get involved when when they need it. But let them fail. Let them become one. Let them experience life together. Why? Because if that couple never becomes one, they'll never experience what marriage is truly all about. They'll never break free. They'll never leave the father and mother and be joined to their wife. And Paul draws that analogy to the church and says, we are one with Christ. And as a result, we must view ourselves as already part of his body, already living in his home, already a part of his plan, already a part of him. So our experiences, our desires, and so on, must line up with what he says. We have purity through submission to who He is, to what He has done, and also to what He will do. You have anticipation there. We anticipate, verse 27, He did this to present Himself to the church, rather, the church to Himself, in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. We anticipate the completion of God's plan. When He will bring to fruition all the promises in Scripture, the completion of all He's been doing. We, we anticipate perfection. I really wish I were perfect. (laughs) And one day, praise God, I will be. 
when I am glorified in heaven. My sinful nature is removed forever. And we will live in a perfect place. Satan will be destroyed and gone. There will be no evil, no sorrow, no, no death, no tears, no sadness. A perfect place. We anticipate that completion. We anticipate that perfection. We anticipate a celebration. Revelation describes what will, will be the celebration. The wedding supper of the Lamb, it says. A celebration for all eternity between God and His people. So until then, we wait expectantly for the one who promised that He would appear. We, we until then, we remain pure. Until then, we remain hopeful and faithful. Until then, we live as if we're already one with Him. Until then, we fulfill His promises, or fulfill rather His, his purposes and his, his mission. Until then, we count on His grace to get us through this world. My goal has been for you to turn your eyes upon Jesus. To look full into His wonderful face. As the bride of Christ, as an individual member of the bride of Christ, to turn your eyes upon that perfect promised one. Are you a part of the bride of Christ? As you turn your eyes upon Jesus, do you, do you view Him as a friend, as your Savior, or as an enemy? Are you a part of the Bride of Christ? Have you committed your life to who He is, to what He has done, to what He will do? God sent His Son to live, to die for us, to be raised again, to be the only way we can receive eternal life. Comes through faith in Him. There's a great verse in Revelation. I want to read it to you as we close. Revelation chapter 21, rather, chapter 22. Chapter 22, verse 12, Jesus is saying, He says, Look, I'm coming quickly. And my reward is with me to repay each person according to what, is, what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In verse 17, both the Spirit and the Bride, John seeing the future, say, come. Join the feast. Join the celebration. Come. Anyone who hears should say, come. And the one who is thirsty should come. Whoever desires should take the living water as a gift. There's water for your soul this morning. It's found only in Jesus Christ. What part of this particular sermon needs your response? Is it a response to who He is as the Savior? Is it a response to what He has done, loving us, giving Himself, making us holy, cleansing us, making us one? Is it a response in anticipation of what He will do? Maybe it's a response to join this church. love to be able to talk with you about that. This morning, we'll close with a hymn, and I, I want you, as always, to feel the, the liberty to come and to pray, to come and talk with me, but certainly to, to commit to the Lord our time of closing, whatever it is He's calling you to. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, don't let us escape this morning without, without responding to what you've said to us this morning. Thank you for making us the bride of Christ. Thank you for making us holy and pure. God, we pray that we would be daily cleansed by your word to remain as you want us to remain. Thank you that you are coming back. And we live in anticipation of that. The perfection, the completion, the celebration that will take place. We thank you. I pray for those who need to respond this morning. Please give them boldness and courage. I ask this in Jesus' name.